Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. My friends, we have come to the end of the first half of our journey. Andor Season 1 is complete. We have watched Episode 12, and we will only have two years to wait till it all has come to a resolution. But don't worry, we have a lot to talk about, and it's going to be myself, Matthew, Paul Hoppy, and returning guest, Professor Matthew Capel. We have all gathered together to ask the blessing of Andor and to enjoy Chapter 12 of this first season of two. And we'll be right back with Commercial Break that we have no control over that I hope doesn't ask you to buy a turkey because you'll probably be listening to this after Thanksgiving. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. I'm joined, as almost always these days, by Mr. Paul Hoppy, the not-a-host regular guest. Uh, and as has been our tradition the last couple of weeks uh, on Andor, Professor Matthew Capel. So I'll say to both of you, happy early Thanksgiving. And uh, how'd you like this episode? The last couple of moments with that little tiny smile by um, Luthen made me reevaluate everything I've said on your podcast the last couple of times. Um, I think it is indeed quite mythical now that I've thought it through. Um, so I was just wrong. So everything I've said up till now, I think I was wrong. Um, so I thought it was quite wonderful. I enjoyed it a great deal. Nice. I definitely want to hear more about uh, the, the mythicality of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that, that moment I thought was, I was like, Huh. That's uh that's a character arc and a smile. Like Yeah. It was very you know. fitting. Um yeah, I loved the last episode. I thought it was fantastic. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting, but I was trying not to have too much of a clear expectation of anything. So I think it yeah. paid off what the series had set up in a way that was congruous with the series itself. It it to me it didn't do something that I was like, mm, this doesn't feel like this series. It, to me, it still felt like yeah. this series, um, but also like, um, you know, big and bold and and different from the earlier episodes, but also fitting with the earlier episodes. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense. I, I think I had largely a similar reaction. There were two things that I didn't love about this. One was a storyline that I kept waiting for them to bring up. The other was just one particular moment that felt all wrong. Um but otherwise, I really loved it. And uh, I'm glad you brought up that smile, especially because I've seen some people on, on um, social media saying, so So, what do you think? Is Luthen going to try and kill Andor? What, what is that? And I was like, that, what? I think that smile is your answer very, very clearly. Um, oh. but, but I need to start with this question because what we saw – now, I'm not going to defend the Empire in any way, shape, or form here. I'm just comparisoning things. What we saw was, you know, an attack on the, the stormtroopers break out, um, and the what happens is they start like you know charging them and throwing things at them, and the stormtroopers put up their shields, and and the and sort of you know let the people crash up against them. We don't see them really fighting back, and the 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 trooper in charge just keeps yelling, "Hold the line, hold the line," which I'm sure is hurting people, but is not being overly aggressive. And it's not until an actual legitimate bomb goes off that they start shooting people. Mm -hmm. And when they start shooting people, it's real bad because they're shooting anybody and everyone. I'm not defending that for a second. But just up until that point, I feel like if there's a protest, I would rather have stormtroopers than most American cops. 
Am I wrong on that? Because I think they handled it better than most cops do protests these days. I think there's uh, a bit of nuance that... Well, so first of all, I don't disagree in terms of like, <laughs> yeah, don't start shooting people, you know? like, mm-hmm. And they do eventually after a bomb is thrown, which... Again, I'm not defending shooting people, but if there's like a point at which you're like, okay, maybe this is now when we start shooting people after a bomb goes off, seems like maybe (laughs) one of the lines where we could discuss. Um, However, I will say I do not think this is because this is the the stormtrooper way. I think it's Mm -hmm. because Dedra repeatedly said, I want him taken alive. I want him taken alive. Don't make me say it again. I want him taken right. alive, right? So I think that's why they were behaving that way, um, as opposed to just they're like, "Oh yeah, it's you know, it's a funeral. We're we're just gonna try to hold the line." I think it's because they're trying not to kill someone that their commanding officer is like, maybe gonna have them killed if they kill off. You know what I mean? Right. I I don't think anyone thought Andor was in that crowd, but I can totally understand the idea of if this turns into a full on fight between both groups. The, the chance of Andor not getting killed in the crossfire goes down significantly. Well, they, goes up significantly. They also don't know that he's not in the crowd. I mean, it's a, it's a right, crowd, yeah. right? I mean, they can't verify. So if you're going to shoot into a crowd, you might kill any given person who may or may not be in that crowd. Right. Exactly. Anyway, I, I just thought that was funny, watching them have a good deal of restraint in that particular situation. Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. Not, not what you saw in the news in, you know, 2020. Exactly. Exactly. All right, well, let's actually kind of jump into the episode. Um, We have a number of different plot lines that all kind of come together. Uh, They don't necessarily all get resolved by any means, which I like, but but certainly, like, you know, it's uh, all hands on deck. Everyone's coming to to Phoenix, uh, Ferrex situation. Uh, Where do you all want to start? I will jump in and say I I think we should start with the fact that um, we get to hear some of the manifesto. Yes. Um, and um, I'm going to start there because I'm on the East Coast, so I've gotten to listen to NPR's All Things Considered today. That's National Public Radio, right? Um, and they interviewed Gilroy, who said, and I quote, um, I have a library downstairs right now on the Russian Revolution, so I could go get you stuff if you'd like. <laughs> um, and um, it was a great quote. I, I, I thought of you, Matthew, very fondly when he said it. Um, and I think listening to those little snippets of the manifesto are probably much more important than you'd think they would be. I don't think of the Disney Corporation as often leaving money on the table. And maybe they want to keep some parts of it held back because they're going to be continually revealed in dribs and drabs. But if they put somewhere on an audio store a recording of that actor reading the whole manifesto for $9.99, I'm buying it. <laughs> I think a lot of other people probably are too. Like it was, yeah, it was really powerful. The lines were great. The delivery by the actor and just kind of like, they didn't have to make it a big deal. You didn't have to see Andor like having a big reaction to it, but just knowing that he was listening to it was clearly a part of his thinking. I thought it was a really powerful moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that he was listening to it then, but also I think it had been clear that he had perhaps been listening to it as well when he was like on um, Nymos as well, you know, yeah. that this is something that he's kind of been absorbing a little bit of as at a time. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the interaction between Nemec and, and Cassian was when 
Nemec makes some statement, and then Cassian's like, well, you got half of that right. And Nemec's like, which half did I get wrong? You know, not like challenging him, like, I want to know, you know? Yeah. So I think to me it seemed clear that he was someone who actually was listening to, you know, various perspectives and trying to kind of synthesize them, you know, as he went along. Especially because, and I think this was very intentional, we we hear two speeches in this episode. One's not a speech, it's him reading aloud a manifesto. Um, But then we also hear Marva's funeral speech. Mm Uh, which I kind of love the idea of everyone getting to give their own funeral oration. Yeah, um, yes. vastly superior, I think. Let alone having your ashes be literally made into a weapon to fight fascism. <laughs> like, watching him use the brick that she's in to hit stormtroopers was so good. But, like, I definitely had this moment of, like, think uh, like that I wanted this, but also thinking that Andor would, might have a thought of, like, I wish Nemec and Marva could have met. You know, because they're using different kinds of language, but they're expressing very similar ideas. And I, I have some issues with Marva that we'll talk about later in the episode, but I, I just thought her speech was so stirring, especially because of how, you know, it didn't start out as, let's go fight the emperor. Let's let's go fight the empire. It felt very clearly written by someone and, and spoken by someone who wanted to build the crowd and build them up more and more but in a way where she probably knew some imperial people would be listening. And if she, like, you know, hit the high point yeah. too early, they would shut her down. And so she waited. It was just – and watching the stormtroopers and the imperial officers all looking at each other being like, it, it, is this it, – uh, wait, wait, what does she say? Wait, oh, this is getting a problem. It's like seeing it slow build until that moment where she just shouts out, like, fight the Empire. And that's what kind of triggers things over. Um well, and then it's the attack on the droid. Yeah, I they love. actually tip over B before she says that, I think, and then she said, or they they try to put the uh, cloak over her, right, like to cut her right. off, right? And then she says that, and then they flip over B, and then they're like, yeah. "What? You flipped over B? <laughs> oh no!" <laughs> yeah, you hurt the droid. It's like the whole community went John Wick, you know? Right? Yeah, like... yeah. So yeah, I just, I, just, I, just, I just thought that was really interesting. And yeah, I, I didn't really thought about the synthesis there until you brought it up. But now I'm thinking like, I, I like the idea that for Andor, it's those two two voices in his head that are, you know, because he, I, I don't think he hears the speech. He might have, depending on what the amplification was. But certainly I think the idea is that like, she has said things like that to him before. I think he definitely heard the speech because he mm. said to Bix, she was great, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. You know, and I think Bix heard the speech. I think the idea is that kind of like everybody hears it, you know. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that was kind of the point of this episode of like having everybody show up on Ferrix and a lot of things not happen that you might expect were going to happen, like certain people confronting one another, right? Um, There was a lot of that not happening. And I think the idea was that this is an event that's, you know, whether it's a turning point in sort of the idea of rebellion throughout the galaxy or whatever, all these people are witnessing that event, you know, from her speech to, you know, the revolt, basically, right? And and so it feels kind of like this was, I don't know, like a little bit of a sort of like Boston massacre type thing where it's like, you know, there was uh, an, there's an uprising, and it's not a we're going to actually overthrow the imperial presence here uprising. It's just, you know, it's a skirmish that a lot of people die. And mm-hmm. um, and so I think 
her being there and, you know, I mean, Cassie and hearing it, I think is important, right? But also I think as important or more important is what she said to Brasso to tell Cassian, you know? Mm. Um, and, and then I also think Luthen is a, is a third kind of voice in his head as well, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, because Luthen was the first one who really was like, you can fight back, you can make a difference. Right, exactly. And if I convince you of that, I get to kill you later. <laughs> well, so so the, the whole Luthen planning to kill Cassian thing, I think makes sense in the end now to me. Because like for a minute, it felt kind of contrived, right? But I think ultimately, I'm good with it. Because I think he started off trying to recruit him. He wasn't like, I want to get this guy to do this one job and then, oh, I'll probably have to bump him off because I've given him too much information. In that first scene between them, you know, he's like, never carry anything with you that you don't control. You know, always build your way out on the way in, right? He's teaching him. He's like teaching right. him to be a, a rebel operative, basically. Um, and then Cassian's like, yeah, I'll help you do this heist, but I'm, I'm not in, you know? And so, and then at the end, you know, he shoots Skeen, takes his money and leaves. And so he's clearly like, I'm not going to be part of your thing. And then Clea is like, well, if he's not going to be part of the thing and you told him stuff, like you got to, you got to kill him. Right. And then he's like, all right, I guess that makes sense. And here at the end, I think, you know, when, when Cassian's like, you know, bring me in, you know, bring me into yeah. to your circle. Like, I, I want to do this. You know, I've come around, basically. And so Luthen's like, oh, I, all right, I won't kill him. I'll just have him, you know, <laughs> have him do all the, the things that, that I want done. Mm -hmm. When especially with Luthen, and like, this is pure conjecture, and it might be wrong, and it might be that it doesn't matter. But I could also easily imagine, given how much he is sort of playing, you know, wheels within wheels and deciding what part to sacrifice and what not on the chessboard, like, that he was like, okay, I'm going to tell these people to try and kill him. Because if they can kill him, well, it's good that we tied up that loose end. But if it turns out they can't kill him, then that's that's a good sign of it. Like, you know, they could be testing him a little bit of like, because I think part of it is also that like not. And granted, it's because there was never like a confrontation that he escaped or something. But they were all on the same planet and they weren't able to find right. him. They weren't able to kill him. Yeah. And so that might be a further like, cool. OK, you kind of got tested and you and you came out well. All the more reason why, of course, I want you on my team. Yeah, the fact that he was able to have, you know, the Empire after him and several rebels after him at the same time and yet, you know, evade uh, capture. Or even, it, he wasn't even, like, running from someone, right? Like, they, he didn't get found. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that that's proving some of his worth as a spy. Although I, I, I don't buy the, you know... Shang-Chi, like, Wen Wu sending his guys to go try and kill him, although he knows he won't, they won't get killed. You know, it, it, like, that, that feels to yeah. me like something that would be a little, um, a little contrived for this. But I do buy the Andor's value goes up in his eyes, given the fact that he was able to, you know, survive that and avoid capture. It's also one of those moments that makes it suddenly very um, mythic, because... It follows the exact pattern of refusal of the call and oh, then yeah. acceptance of the call, right? He's like, mm -hmm. um, as soon as he's like, fine, I'm in, um, suddenly instead of um, kind of a 
threshold guardian um, in Luthen, we have a mentor in mm -hmm. Luthen, mm -hmm. um, which is a really important shift. Yeah. Especially because, you know, of the numerous people we've been exposed to who have a part in this rebellion, Luthen is probably the one who is, I mean, maybe this is just my perspective, but feels the most, like, morally compromised. You know, not in terms of, like, he, like he's fighting a good fight, but he's taking a lot of actions that I think, like, maybe can be justified, maybe not, but are certainly raising a lot of, of eyebrows. And, uh, you know, we see that, you know, the, the they do wind up letting that group of people get killed. Um, the guy with the German name that begins with K. Krieger. Um, oh. Krieger. Anto Krieger. Krieger. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's a, it's a really interesting choice for... It, it like it fits for helping us learn more about who who Cassian is, and it's it fits where he already is, and it also fits like, you know, if Mon Mothma mentored him, I don't believe he winds up being the kind of guy who can take a person who's absolutely going to help him, but is going to slow him down and shoot him in the back or shoot shoot him the way he did in uh, Rogue One. Mm. So like it it feels very fitting that yeah he's now coming under kind of the Luthan side of the the rebellion. Yeah, I, I think so for sure. Um, to address the the sort of the mythology here, I think this is the episode where Andor decides to be a hero. It's the yes. first, right? It's the first time mm -hmm. he does something that isn't, you know, for for his own ends, right? Like the very the first three episode arc, he's trying to find a sister, and then he ends up, you know, killing two sentries uh, and then bringing heat down on Ferrix and his goal is to escape and he escapes right and then the next three is to do this heist that yes it's part of the rebellion but you know he gets a bunch of money he's like I, you know I scored right and then he brings yeah. the money home and he wants to take Marvin B2E and, and you know and get out of there and then he ends up having to just go by himself because Marva's like yeah I'm, I'm not leaving you know and and then he just goes off on his own, and he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to try and lay low. And then he gets, you know, taken by the Empire because he was walking in the wrong place, right, according yeah. to them. And and then the prison break, it's like, yeah, he inspires a bunch of people to break out of the prison, but, like, he wants to get out of the prison. <laughs> That's why he does that mm -hmm. whole thing, right? And then here, this is the first time that it's he's like, I'm going to go and rescue Bix. Like, I'm going to, you know... I, I was thinking when uh, what Brasso said, like, what, you're going to take on an, a whole imperial garrison? And, and Cassian's probably thinking, well, I've done it before. But, like, <laughs> right? Um, but, yeah, he's just like, I'm going to go do the hero thing because now that's that's how I see things and that's, that's what I want to be doing. Um, and so all of the things, it's not like there was one thing that led him to that. It's all of these things, which is, like, I believe how people actually change. Right. Like, I don't yeah. think it's usually one event event. There can be one event that's a bit of a, a catalyst, but a, a catalyst doesn't do anything unless there's there's fuel there. Right. That if there's already things that have have set up that change. And so I think here is where he's he's changed. And and now he's a hero. I mean, he's still a hero who, you know, flips someone over and then just shoots them in the chest instead of knocking them out or whatever. You know, he's he's who he is. But yeah, I. I think I agree with every word you said except hero. I, I might say that this is when he decides to join the larger fight. Like, because to me, hero is still a level of, like, I'm, I'm, like, he saves Bix in part because, I mean, Bix is someone who has a personal connection to him, uh, which I, I don't think makes his act any less awesome and important. But, like, especially joining up with Luthen, and, and maybe this is, again, I'm just putting too much morality on a hero, but it, 
it, it feels to me like he's joining a fight necessarily like just it, it not necessarily trying to like you know take on a hero mantle because i don't think he's trying to be like the one everyone sees doing it he's just trying to like be a part of it um yeah but i just Matthews think ex- oh go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say i think that's heroic i think that's what heroism is i don't think heroism is lacking any kind of moral compromise you know but mm-hmm. like it's doing something that isn't, you know, largely out of out of self-serving whatever. And I, I don't mean that, like, as a judgment. I mean, as just, like, a, I don't right. know, that's how I see the word. But. That's fair. Yeah, I like that. You know, I think this entire um, season was about that arc for him, though. Is he going yeah. to be a hero or not? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think where the three of us might come down on it determines... Not who he is as a character, but who we think heroes are. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and, but the, the the Star Wars version of the hero's journey, and I have to say this, um, the hero's journey is kind of ridiculous. Um, and um, it's so vague and generalized that you can make just about anything fit it. So everything mm-hmm. fits mm-hmm. it now. And, right. Um, and way too many screenwriting classes tell you how to use it. Um, uh so, uh, so yes, that's a problem. And one of the reasons I thought that this was not a mythological story at all was because of its kind of Marxist leanings. And I was like wandering around cleaning my apartment and I went, wait a minute, but Marx is really mythical. Um, because yeah, I was going to say that they had a, like, they preserved Lenin's body in a tomb for 60 years. That, that's a mythological figure if ever I've heard of one. <laughs> Well, well, and very much the, 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 the version of history that Marx gives us is the same version of history that Christianity gives us, right? Everything was great in the deep past, be it Eden or the classless society. And then Jesus comes and we get rid of the need for suffering or um, classes disappear and we are in a classless utopia again. Um, it's a very similar version of history. Um, so, of course, this is very mythological, but... The thing that was holding me back was, of course, he dies. And we know he dies. But he, he, his journey is very much the hero's journey. He, when he dies in Rogue One, he descends into the underworld. He gets the special tool, the elixir. The only difference is he can't get it out himself, mm-hmm. um, which is what happens to Beowulf. It's not what happens to Odysseus. Um, and, you know, Beowulf dies. But the thing about Beowulf is his um, payoff is everybody knows who he is and he's famous as a hero. Um, and the um, attempt to be more adult here is that nobody's going to know who Andor is after he's dead. Um, um, and and I think that's a really actually kind of a beautiful form of the hero's journey. Um, well, that that he did it even though... He wasn't going to be famous, even though he wasn't going to return with the boon himself. Um, so I'm really interested to see how they get there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to keep talking for a second, Matthew. Um, but um, so one of the things that the hero has to do um, and that Star Wars has been really good at is what um, the myth scholar Joseph Campbell called the belly of the whale. You know, you go into something that makes you reevaluate who you are. Um, in um, Empire Strikes Back, it's that cave where Luke confronts the ghostly form of Vader. Um, in Star Wars, it's probably the trash compactor. Um, in Andor, it's definitely the prison. Um, 
and you have to climb out of it. It's one of the things you absolutely have to do is climb out of it. Um, and you know the way they the the way they do this um, in most myths they will have somebody who keeps you from doing it. Um, what they call a threshold guardian. So you can think of like the guy who doesn't let you cross the river Styx to get to Hades hmm. in Greek mythology, Charon. Um, and here, it actually is the guy who's going to be the mentor and the guy who's going to help you escape from the prison are both guardians. They both have to be convinced right. to become your ally. Mm, um, like and that. that's, that's the, real, the, the real twisty part of it. Um, Luthen has to, and he does in that very last minute, he's like, yeah, okay, you're in. <laughs> um, but um, Kino Loy does too. Kino yeah. Loy is like, no, we are not going to do this over and over and over again. No, you cannot do this. And then he's like, okay, we're going to do it. Yeah. But like any good, like any good ally in a mythic story, then he must die. Mm. Um, I, I I still think someone got Kino a floaty of some kind. So, but I I do hear what you're saying. Um, and yeah. I, I will say I think that has me more convinced. And a lot of it, I think, Paul, you're right. It's just different kind of understandings of the word hero. For me, where it really stands, and maybe this is not about, like, hero versus during the fight. It is, as you said, just kind of re-understanding of the, of the word hero there. Because to me, what I kept... <clears throat> I think the single line, maybe, that most struck me throughout the whole episode was as part of Nimick's, um manifesto, his description, his description of how... You know, it, what's going to stop the empire isn't like sort of one noble person leading one group of people. It's going to be all these little, um, you, you know, like holes in the dike yeah. that they can't plug up. It's all these little insurrections and all these different planets that are bubbling up to the surface, many of which won't ever be remembered. But it's the totality of it that the empire can't deal with because, you know, as he says, the empire is, is just so fundamentally unnatural. And I feel like that gives me a really good framework to understand what you're talking about of how, like, yeah, it's not that what they did on Fenix is the one thing that happened. It's that what Andor's doing on Fenix is important, just like what so many people on so many other planets are probably doing is important. And that it's the totality of that 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 brings about what Nemex is talking Nemec? Nemec? Nemec. Nemec is yeah. talking about. Yeah, Nemec, for, yeah, for sure. I think... Um... You know, so first of all, there's definitely certain connotations to the word hero that I don't think apply to Andor. That's, you know, right. that's not what I mean. I think in the broader sense, I think he becomes a hero here. But I think you could also say that, you know, all of the people who decide to rise up against these stormtroopers with guns and superior technology and, you know, the upper hand are all heroes in their own way, right? Yeah, and, that's right. And so it's like when you have one hero... With the lightsaber, that hero has to do extraordinary things on their own, right? When you have a billion heroes, each one doesn't have to do a single act that is as dramatic, right? It's It takes, and I think that's, you know, that's <laughs> kind of where maybe a little bit of the sort of Marxist leanings of the show come in also, right? Is that it's not, it's not someone doing a thing. It's many, many, many people doing things right. together. Here, this was a group uprising, right? And um, I think that idea of not being remembered also is, is echoed in, in Marva's speech here and in uh, Luthen's speech in episode 10, right? Like mm -hmm. that it's like the point isn't to be remembered. The point is to do the thing. Like that's the point. Yeah. And when you have yeah, so many that, people doing the thing. 
than I, I think that fits it well because I think for me, hero is still very wrapped up in the kind of great man of history mm-hmm. kind of idea. And one thing I like ever since Rogue One is that idea of kind of like pulling away from that, the idea of it being more of a, a team and an ensemble. And and so yeah, I think with with Nemec's, Nemec's analysis, yeah, I can totally see what we're saying there. If this isn't one person taking down the Berlin Wall. This is everybody taking down the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Right. Which is like what happened, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it also, actually, I thought of the Berlin Wall when you were talking earlier, Paul, um, because it is the final episode and there's a lot of people in it that nothing really happens to. It mm-hmm. kind of encapsulates that when you're part of history, but when somebody is like, what did you do? And you're like, well, I didn't do anything. Um, it just happened. Um, right. That that was very present there. I mean, I sat on a right. bed in Toronto and watched CNN when the Berlin Wall came down. Mm. That's my mm. Berlin Wall story. Right. right? Um, and that's the story most people have. Where were yeah. you when Kennedy was shot kind of stuff? It, it's funny, too, because it, uh, earlier uh, this week, I was actually reading a very part of, powerful article um, about like the, the continued effort to sort of really piece together exactly what happened at Stonewall in the, mm. the Stonewall riots that started uh, this most recent iteration of, of the kind of gay pride movements and the like. I mean, obviously, there have been the versions of that for thousands of years. And, you know, there was a movie made that was about a white person who kind of like threw the first brick. And then it became uh, sort of very popular understood that uh, Marsha P. Johnson, who was a, a trans woman who was part of it, that she had thrown the first brick. And now kind of as more stories are coming out, it's clear that she threw something but that actually what's – as this article was arguing and based on a lot of historical analysis and, and, and interviews and the like, that she had thrown something against sort of like the glass behind the bottles of the bar and shattered that. And that was the kind of moment that everything broke. Mm. Um, and I think it's so interesting that like, yeah, it is a movement where it, it, it was a collective group of people who just collectively decided they had had far – they had had far too much of what you know the police had been doing to them. And I think probably things that like what Martha Johnson did were very heroic and very important, but kind of like that kid throwing the bomb yeah. in this episode, you know, like, yes, what he does is super important, but so is Marva's speech. And so is, uh, you know, all the other people who were involved. And like, there's this desire to find that one person who did the one thing. And we should heroize the pe- all the people who do the important things, but that often it's not as simple as that. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, individual people doing individual things that adds up to a group doing group things at the end of the day. Right. Because tyranny requires constant effort. That's right. Because it's so unnatural. Great line, yeah. And and freedom is a pure idea. That was the other one. Yeah. So what did we think about the budding romance that this uh, showed us in one of our final scenes? I am always disappointed by romance, um, which is a horrible thing to say for somebody who's as happily married as I am. um, um, Every time I see romance in a popular narrative, I'm like, how how is this going to undermine the position of the woman in this story? Mm -hmm. Well, Um, to be clear, I I wasn't even trying to talk about Andor and Bix. I'm talking about... Yes, Stalker I know. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Serial Karn and um, Dedra. Yeah, he's yeah, practically I, a Twilight vampire. He's so following her around. It was the, it, That was the moment that I said felt really wrong to me because I, I felt like the show had been giving us this very interesting analysis of, you know, Danielle came on our uh, 
podcast a couple weeks ago and talked about him as sort of like a, a proto, you know, kind of the, the, the type of person that often now goes on to the term incel, which is not, I think, the exact definition that fits Cyril, but very much of that same, like, you know, rejected by women, becoming more radicalized to that and, and all the West that can go down. And certainly, as we saw in two episodes ago, her, her confronting him, confronting her and having this kind of like, uh, you know, very aggressive, very like, no, but you're supposed to be with me and to the point of physically grabbing her. And I was like, I was really loving that the show had shown us that. And so having her and him save her and having this moment that I don't know if you felt this, but it very much felt to me like a like, are they about to kiss kind of moment? Because yeah. she's like, what? You, you saved me. You shouldn't have done. Why? Why did you do that? Like, I. I really didn't like that moment. I'm curious what you thought of it. In in defense of the um, actor who plays Miro, um, whose name is Denise Go, um, she really tried to sell it. I, I she mm-hmm. really tried to sell it so much in a way that suggested to me that she knew it wasn't the best use of the character that that it was going to ring wrong. Mm. Um, and oh, Dedra, Dedra, you mean? Dedra, yeah, that's it. Yeah, Dedra Miro. Um, the the actor was like, I'm going to make this seem like the thing that would happen, but I, she was working so hard at it that it, it emphasized that it was probably the wrong move for the writers. Well, for Gilroy, um, yeah, I think she was like, I this is not what this this should be ending this way, and so she she really worked at saying working to make us believe that maybe that is how it should end, even though she, I don't think she thought it was correct as a as a performer. Yeah. The way she tried to sell it made it more obviously discombobulated. And now I'm shutting up because I was rambling. <laughs> so I'm not thoroughly convinced that this is the beginning of a budding romance. Like, I can see what you see, I believe, yeah. right? But at the same time, I also see something else there, which was, like, the first conversation they had, I thought they were kind of very similar people at first, right? Mm-hmm. Then after his like, oh no, but by the way, I'm totally a stalker. Um, I was like, oh no, that's not their dynamic. Right. You know? Um, and I was kind of pushing back on the idea that she felt maybe physically threatened or whatever. Um, but this moment, not so much their, them talking to one another, but mm-hmm. her... Um, sort of actions in the struggle, in the actual physical altercation, you know, the what was going on, made me actually see them as kind of similar again. Mm. And I, I do think that there's the danger of, like, undercutting her as a character, right? right. But at the same time, I think, uh, I think both of these characters are kind of showing something important, which is that, like, there are people who, you know, work these, like, desk jobs or whatever in whether it's intelligence or, you know, law enforcement or whatever kind of agencies, you know. And they're not necessarily these, you know, streetwise, like, know how to handle things in the moment kind of people. Right. right? And... So I think there was an interesting parallel of like from that episode three where Cyril comes to town and is like, yeah, we're going to apprehend Andor. And then he's just like totally shell-shocked by the reality of trying to go out and do what what he's trying to go out and do. And here I think she ends up 
having that reaction as well. Like she's, I think, a brilliant um, strategist, right? And I, I think in terms of her understanding of how the rebellion might function, I think she's like top notch, right? Clearly, yeah. like in a way that you you don't want the fascists to have anybody with that level of, of capability, right? Um, but then I think here she's kind of revealed to be like, not, I don't want to say like ivory tower, but that kind of like more of a, yeah. And it's not even like theoretician, right? Because it's like, she is all about practical um, actions. Like what are we going to do to get this response? Right. But kind of like, kind of like a social engineering or whatever. Whereas I, I think it's that both of them seem to have a sense of invulnerability. Like, until they're confronted think, with the reality yeah, of, he, yeah, exactly. He seemed to think as long as I'm doing the right thing, it'll be okay. And yeah. that's both in terms of enforcing the law, but then dealing with the bureaucracy. And for her, it's, I have the imperial uniform. And like, yeah, I thought that scene where like she was under all the, the crowd and they yeah. were tearing her apart was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, like I, maybe it's the way it was shot or maybe I've just watched Captain America too much. When, when the bomb gets thrown and Cyril like runs towards it, yeah. I thought he was going to, like, Captain America jump on top oh. of it or something in what would be a, like, kind of heroic act right, in, right. in that one little regard, but also saving, like, he's saving his colleagues, yeah. giving up himself, saving terrible colleagues, right, right. but, you know, there you go. Sure. Um, I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I could very much get if it is a moment of finding a connection with each other. Mm-hmm. I just, I wish they hadn't shot it by having their faces that close mm, in the very sure. traditional Hollywood, yeah. are we about to kiss moment. Right, right. And, there's there's a sort of stereotype I think um, a trope maybe of like um, the secondary characters in the Nazi movie who <laughs> are going to have a child for the glory of the state, right? Um, and they felt very much like that. Yeah, right. Like they didn't want to kiss, but you know the Empire might need them to kiss. <laughs> and I think the only other part of it for me is because I think you're right, Paul. I think there was an element to which. You know, they, they had a connection at first, but I think for her, as someone who struggled so, there's almost kind of a respectability politics of it. Like, for her, as someone who's fought so hard to be taken seriously with her somewhat out-of-the-box the ideas, having someone who is never going to be taken seriously, she's like, no, I can't in any way be associated with you. you right. Know, you, you, I need to show that I'm reasonable because I'm not you. And... You know, and, and I think we, we talked about how the, uh, she so quickly dismisses him in a way that you could be like, yeah, what what's that about? I didn't love, and again, I don't know if this was even intended by the writers. And yeah, I don't certainly think we're going to see them like kissing lots in season two. I don't, it, it was just the way that moment was framed. I think part of it for me is also this idea that when she is physically threatened and her sense of invulnerability is cracked, all of a sudden she's like, oh, man who's been kind of chasing me, all of a sudden I'm seeing your value. Right. And like, it just, that is just so tied up with so many cliches and tropes mm. that it just – and maybe that's me projecting some of those tropes under where it wasn't necessarily was. But it's so close to that that it, all, it was just one more reason why it rubbed me wrong. Sure. But perhaps we should focus on not just that moment. Yes. There, yes. there was a lot more. I just wanted to kind of bring that up to be sure. I think we've talked it to death I'm, I'm I'm terrified of it, but um... – much like the story of Mon Mothma, I'm willing to wait for the next season to see where it actually fits. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there certainly wasn't a um, resolution to whatever you think, wherever you think that story might be going, right? With, um, right. I mean, with either 
Um, yeah. I, I would say in terms of actual romantic developments, I, I thought uh, Val and Cinta, like, who didn't end up actually doing that much there, right, in terms of right. interacting with other characters, except, uh, you know, a little little stabby-stabby. Um, <laughs> uh, but, like, I, I don't know. I, I'll say that their relationship, like, the sort of struggle of it while, you know, one of them's, like, super focused on work and the other one's, like, well, can, can we maybe get a minute to, can you, like, say hi, you know? Um, it felt very real. It felt as real to me as, like, yeah. any any relationship, really, any romance I've seen in Star Wars to date. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because it's not romance. It's it's the I think romance is often associated with like the seduction and the, mm. like will they won't they, and often once they kiss, that's the end of the story. Whereas this is just about yeah the tension of sharing a workplace while sharing a relationship, right? Uh, under constant threat of death. <laughs> you know, and, like yeah, I do. I, I I I wish there had been just a little bit more physical affection showed between them, just for the representation factor. But yeah, I did think it was very well done. The way they show that, and that it wasn't a okay. So this is the thing that will break them up. It was just no. This is just a tense moment. Yeah, yeah. and nobody said I hate sand. Right. Nobody yes. said that. Yeah. I mean, um. So, but how do you feel about that representation moment? I and again, I am. I'm a queer person. I'm not a lesbian, and so I, all the rest that goes along with that. It felt like the crumbs are getting bigger. You know, like the the. <laughs> It is still pretty far away from the kind of representation I would want Star Wars to actually have on screen, Uh, which, by the way, they are doing constantly in the new books, which I think is really interesting. Like, we've now had numerous characters with non-binary pronouns in Star Wars and numerous uh, examples of, like, full-on queer relations of the one kind in the Star Wars book. So, yeah, it felt like... I'm very glad it was there. I'm incredibly glad that neither one died so far, just because that's a trope we're breaking, at least for now. Um, and, and the fact that, as Paul said, I think that their relationship not only was like, oh, hey, look, they're kind of giving a nice look to each other, so stop yelling at us for not having enough queer people. Their relationship was actually a character development moment that was like an important plot point. It wasn't just, hey, they're queer, so we can have representation. So... I, I thought it was a lot better than it has been, even though it was still I would have liked a lot more. I, I kind of think their version of representation is a corporate strategy. Mm-hmm. Right? Because um, Marvel does the same thing, which is the stuff that's not going to be all that seen in Saudi Arabia and China is where you get it. The books or the TV shows, um, not the films. Um, and I'm, I'm beginning to find that problematic and... I don't know, sad mm-hmm. like that that they don't have the they want to say, well, no, we're doing representation. Read this book. Um, but they don't have the um, guts to really just go all in on it. This is a larger topic for conversation, I think. I, I think I have a little bit more hopeful view, which is that it seems to me more like the TV show is the testing ground, that it's sort of like, OK, let's dip our foot into the water and if we don't get the studio burned down, then maybe next it can go on screen. Um, but I do think you're right. That there's certainly a lot of the like, like, like I said, like most of it's in the books, which probably has the smallest portion of the, the media. So, yeah, I, I, I think that I'm a little hopeful that it's going to move forward. 
but it's moving forward way too slowly. And I think there's a very good possibility that it just becomes kind of like that's the place where we put it so it never has to go anywhere else. Exactly. I mean, I definitely think TV or series are often kind of the, whether it's testing grounds or just it's just ahead of films, you know, depending on the, and not like films broadly speaking, but like specifically like blockbuster films, you know, because so much of the money from blockbuster films comes from, um, you know, international, like from, from being, not even just international, but from being viewed like in all different places, right? So I think not only is that true in terms of representation, but also in terms of kind of what ideas you can put forth and, you know, um, how, how much you can go after your concept compared to having to kind of be like, well, you know, we're going to need to have the third act CGI battle. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. Having, developing any kind of really interesting plot line, which you need if representation isn't going to just appear tokenizing. Yeah, it takes a lot more time. Yeah, for sure. But we can still get it in movies. So. Um, let's talk about, speaking of representation, let's talk about Marva a bit. Because and this has been a subject that I've been discussing a lot on Twitter. And I know a lot of people have strong opinions on. We're probably going to do a full episode on this topic with Danielle and some other people at a later date. But I wanted to kind of bring it up. Um, the, the thing that was bothering me more and more as the season went on particularly as I heard and, and read and saw content from a lot of the Latina creators uh, and other people of color creators who had issues with this, is, and Paul, you and I talked about it a little bit at the beginning, mm-hmm. that the image of Marva kind of rescuing Cassian is tied up with a lot of things in our own culture about, you know, kids of color being rescued by white parents and kind of raised, taken away from their own cultures. And that happens with, excuse me, that's happened quite a lot with indigenous kids in a lot of different uh, parts of the world. Certainly in Australia, they've had huge issues with it. it happened all the time here in the United States and other places. Um, it certainly happened. It happens all the time right now in our do- adoption and foster care systems. Um, and there's been a lot more talk from kids who've gone through that, who often, you know, who are now adults, who often say things like, "Yeah, like even if I was in a very bad situation, and I, I appreciate the the white people who who adopted me or who raised me." There's still a lot of problems with it, and and in some cases, I wish that maybe they, if they looked harder, they wouldn't have seen that I had to be rescued. Or even if I was going to be rescued, I wish there was more of an attempt to keep me connected to to my culture of origin, stuff like that. All of which is to say, I felt like when they first showed us that scene, they left a lot open to debate, and they they showed us Marva's perspective, and that from Marva's perspective, like they had to rescue this child, or this child was going to die, and I think it is completely legitimate to see that as the truth of the fact of the situation. I think it's also very possible to say that maybe there's more information that Marva didn't know. Certainly Marva could have maybe like asked him. She could have woken him up in some way. Uh, That may have not been factually possible. I don't remember the exact details there. Um, You know, there's a lot we didn't know. And especially like, again, we don't know too much of it, but the fact that he is working to kind of reconnect with his sister tells me that like there wasn't much of an effort later to like go back and like see did anyone else survive well you know what what did happen when the republic came did they actually kill all these excuse me did they actually come and like kill all these kids which i admit a part of me is like i don't know if that i can 100 percent believe that would have happened and there'd be no record or, or anything like that all of this is just to say that early on i thought one of the plot lines they were sort of planting particularly in showing a lot of tension between marva and cassian 
and her not loving the idea that he's off looking for his sister is that maybe there is some tension about this. And maybe it's an issue that's been fully resolved or maybe it's just something they've learned to live with. But that there is some kind of like tension there that's in some way going to get acknowledged. And so to have her have this very heroic funeral scene, which I think she gives an amazing, powerful speech, but that we get and that it still is possible that in season two, we're going to explore it two years from now. But I think for me, at least, it felt a little off to not address that. And having read the reports of a lot of people who are really loving the show, but who are because they've had personal experience with this or they've been close to experience with this and really could sort of resonate with that part of the story and were really bothered by it not being brought up. Um, it, it was the one other kind of sour note for me. Um, and I, as I said, if you follow my Twitter, you'll see some discussion of it. I think like a lot of things on, on social media, it's become a very binary thing of like, you know, either she rescued him and it was, as one person said to me, an unambiguously morally good event, or, you know, <laughs> she stole him and it was wrong and terrible and bad. And she's just like an awful colonizer. And I, I, I definitely don't think that the second one is true. I think the first one is a lot more. I, I think the truth is probably a lot more common, nuanced and complicated than all of that. And here's, here's the last thing. I've been on a long monologue. I promise I'll let you guys ju jump in. For me, I think when so much of the show, like in a lot of shows, I wouldn't expect them to get into that level of compli complexity and nuance. But in this show, where I felt like the bar has been raised so high of all the situations that you think on the surface look purely morally good or purely morally bad, we're going to explore that they're much more complex and nuanced. I'm disappointed that they haven't given us that with this. A quick myth aside, well, that was a made-up word, but I mean it that way. <laughs> is that how you sign a myth? That is about the myth. Uh, is one of the things that the, the the myth has to do is give the kid a special childhood, right? He's secretly a prince, or or um, he's secretly a Skywalker, um, and, and this does that very effectively, and does what Paul really likes about it, which is giving in-universe reason for his accent, which I think is fantastic. Um, so um, I I like. I, I kind of like it from that perspective, but at the same time, um, there's a certain there's a certain generation of kind of like not quite radical Marxist thinkers in American culture who like to pretend like race isn't a thing, mm -hmm. um, and they they just they 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 see everything as a class issue, um, uh, and it and it's weird. Um, I, I've known a lot of those people in academia where they're like. Um, they, they're the kind of people who are the leftists who say, I don't see race. Um, yeah. and, and I kind of think that maybe that was part of Tony Gilroy's, um, Achilles heel there, that, that while it was there, it's not going to stay there. Not in season two. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I'd probably rather have fewer, but uh, <laughs> I, I did read said Twitter uh, discussion, if you could call it discussion, and you know it just reinforced my urge to quit all social media. Um, I think first of all, it's important to acknowledge, like, yeah, there's there's horrible things that happen in our world along these lines, right? And and that's that's real, and um, I think. There are sometimes things that maybe look like one thing and are actually another thing, 
you know, and a right. lot of times the uh, the truth is complex. And you know, when when you talk about some some kids who were either born in a particular culture or place or of, of a certain race and then adopted by someone of another culture or race or in another place, different people have different experiences, right? And right. I mean, I, I know a number of people with this experience and, and I've seen different um, opinions or different, different experiences from the same type of experience, right? And I, I haven't had that experience myself, so I'm not gonna, you know, say, anything about it right except that i i've seen people have very different ways of looking at it themselves right mm -hmm. and so i think sometimes um there's this idea that like a thing is just a thing and it's like the context doesn't matter and i think in the in the case of the show i think there was very clear context the context being that this is a planet that has been um exploited by the Republic, right? And bad things have happened. And it's unclear whether Casa is actually growing up in his culture per se, or kind of more in the remnants of his culture, right? Does his right. entire culture even exist anymore? Like there's no adults. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the culture. Maybe it's not. We don't know. And on some level, I appreciate that we don't know because maybe Cassian doesn't know. Right. Maybe he doesn't remember what it was like to be Casa. Right. Um, I do think that in the very first episode, um, they made it clear that the Republic might come and kill them all, but also that we don't know. Right. Right. Marva clearly thinks that Clem pushes back. Right. So mm -hmm. I would say this is at least lampshaded in the show where Clem is like, yeah. he's got people here and she's like people who just killed a Republic officer. They're all going to get killed, which is like, mm, maybe, maybe can you, can you try and help them? I don't know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe you can't because the Republic is like super powerful and you know, whatever. But, um, so I, I think it's hard to see her action as anything but, um, well-intentioned, but also somewhat, questionable and not so much questionable in terms of like should she have done something different necessarily but like that we don't know and she doesn't know and so she was making an assumption and did what she thought was the best thing at the at the that point in time right could you yeah. say could you say well-intentioned but naive i i think potentially yeah yeah you know um for sure um but th but then again we don't know how much she knows about the situation on canari Right. Because right. we don't know that much about the situation on Canari. So I think I think they do show as it goes on, though, like she still got his stuff from Canari. Right. It's still mm -hmm. there. And I think and she also talks about him having everything taken away. Right. And so I think I don't think that's like just about Clem. I think she understands and acknowledges that there was harm in that being his story you know i don't right. think she necessarily um feels culpability in that regard we're not really shown anything right. like that um you know we are shown some doubt by clem in the first place but then 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 it seems like they had like a generally i want to say happy family life although it, it seems like 
everything in this galaxy is largely misery and suffering. But like, <laughs> you know, they they had loving relationships amongst yeah. each other, right? And, and to be clear, I think you and I are almost entirely in agreement yeah. in that regard. Like, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying I think that any – that, like, Marva is evil or wrong for doing this, nor that I think it, it guarantees that she couldn't be a loving parent to Cassian. And, and like you, I've heard a whole wide range of these stories. And I think what I, pro- I, I definitely have heard ones, folks who have said, no, there was never any problem at all. I've definitely heard someone who said, like, my parents were horrible racists. And the minute I got 18, I left their house. I think the majority, though, have been much more nuanced and complex. Kind of like what you're talking about. You know, there's one distinct thing I remember from a, a woman who gave a speech on this who said, look, and, and she was black and adopted by white parents mm-hmm. and said, I loved my mother. She was wonderful to me. She, she cared for me. But I wish she had had any idea how to take care of black girls' hair, you know. And 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 she kind of she she used that as the perfect example of just like you know I wish my mom had thought more about the fact that I she couldn't just raise me the exact way she would a white daughter or something like that. And and yeah, I, and so I don't like I'm not saying that like I hate that the two of them loved each other or that they had a good relationship or anything like that. I just I I feel like there would it would have come up in some way at some point, and I wish that that I wish the story had just acknowledged that in some way, mm-hmm. and it could have been something fairly simple of just like while they were fighting, you know, her just saying like, yeah, you haven't been this mad at me since you know we talked about why I took you away, or like him talking to Bix about like, yeah, you know, I was mad at her for a while when I was younger, and you know, and you know, like her death could have been his his chance to kind of process that a little bit and talk about how. At one point in time, he was very mad at her about it, but he came to understand her decision more, anything like that. Like, it's not like I want I, – I think she was a very heroic character. I think she was probably a very loving mother. And we don't know the comple- what actually happened. I just wish we'd gotten a little bit more of that being a nuanced situation. Mm. That, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. I Also, I'm like, we don't know that he – was mad about that. Like, we do know that he wanted, he still wants to find his sister because he thinks he has an unresolved idea of what happened there, right? For whether, whether that's legit or not, we don't know, right? I mean, I feel like you don't usually put that into a story unless the sister's going to show up in season two. But, Mm -hmm. you know, again, we'll see or we won't see. But like, she, you know, they did have a conversation about that. They did talk about that, you know? Right. And she's like, you know, that's a fantasy. Like, everybody was killed on Ferrix, uh, on, not on Ferrix, on, on Canari. Which, right. you know, maybe it will turn out that that was, she's saying that just because it was an easier way of, you know, dealing with it. Or maybe that is what happened. And maybe maybe we'll see, yeah. right? Um but I don't know. I, I mean, that's the problem with like a series not all coming out all at once. It's like, yeah. Like I definitely feel like they're probably gonna circle back to the sister thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. But and, and it may well be that like, again, because everything else has been so intentional, it may well be that they have intentions to to, to cover this. It's just that it's not going to be for two years, and so it's kind of frustrating at the moment. Sure. Um, or it might be as Matthew said, it might just be that there's a bit of a blindness there. Although I, I am a little afraid, especially with the new control of Congress, that if there is any kind of like House of American Un-American Unacti- Activities Committee that starts up again, we are making sure that Tony Gilroy is going to get t- called to testify. So please, any Republicans listening, like we don't think he's an act. I mean, who the hell knows? But don't use us. Don't use us as evidence in the House Un-American Activities against Tony Gilroy. Um, 
Anyway, so yeah, I think that's all that needs to be said about that. Unless Matthew, you had anything else, and uh, or else we can go to the one last thing I wanted to bring up. I just want to be called before Congress now, so I can say, right? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Have you no decency? <laughs> hey, listen, listen. At some point, we'll tell the story about how Paul and I were having an episode. We were trying really hard not to discuss actually like killing an important political figure just in the story and the police knocked on paul's door in the middle of the episode it's true Um, that happened it wasn't at all connected in any way we think but it still was a very freaky moment well Um, but that does bring up something so how do you both think about the fact that it's a riot i mean one of the central moments of this episode is a riot i'm from detroit so riots are a big deal um, my thesis for history and my master's thesis was on the 1943 Detroit riot. Um, the 1960, the 1968 riot was very much, um, the cops still to this day say, oh man, we didn't do anything wrong until they attacked us. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. I mean, I, I, I live in Minneapolis and was, a, I could smell the smoke during George Floyd. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. And I, I think it was very interesting the way that they portrayed it. Because like I said, I don't I think the desire to fight the Empire was really interesting. And I think what they showed it was that the Empire was responding with appropriate fo- with wow. a, a proportional response. And then it was one of the, the townspeople who hugely elevated the situation by throwing a bomb. And I I liked that. I liked the idea that it's like we don't have to just wait, you know. I think there's an awful lot of situations that are called riots that really shouldn't be, especially the last couple of years. But also, like you said, 1968 Chicago, where all these protesters who were starting things had lumps on the back of their heads from the billy clubs. Um, Like my mother uh, was a law student during the Columbia riots and said very similar things. Um, So, like, on the one hand, I think it's important to know that most things people call riots, the violence is instigated by the police. But in this case, it wasn't because they would they it wasn't a we want to have a peaceful protest that's turning into a riot. Like she said, fight the empire, rise up. And and I kind of love that that kid threw the bomb to make it be like, no, this isn't just we're protesting. We're This is like we're supposed to be fighting these people. And and yeah, I thought it was very interesting the way that played out. And, and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's interesting because the whole funeral was played like a protest, right? Like they went. The time that they said they were going to, as opposed to the time they were told to go, they didn't have 40 people. They had however many people they wanted, you know, and then they had a a speech, like a performance. Right. And then the fascists said, "Okay, we're going to cut that off. And they flipped over a a droid. And then then there was basically like a a spontaneous revolt, you know, a spontaneous uprising, but also not entirely spontaneous spontaneous because like that kid had been spending the last day making a bomb (laughs) you know and there were some other bombs that blew up that i wasn't quite clear like were those things the empire had sitting around or were those planted in order to be like secondary explosions i wasn't certain oh that's a good point i hadn't thought of that you know regarding i I thought it was just like a box of grenades that fell over and ignited right so those were like was part of their equipment their equipment yeah yeah um, yeah, maybe don't have a bunch of grenades hanging around where you're you're hanging out. <laughs> you know, I, basic safety. I, I mean, one thing that really struck me, although bringing a box of grenades maybe speaks against what I'm about to say. Yeah. But part of it felt to me like the empire, kind of as a macrocosm of what happened with Dedra, of not really thinking like a group of people being mad could become a big problem. It felt like part of their sort of like not 
ramping up the intensity of the violence very early was because they didn't take it seriously. They didn't think this was going to be a big deal. Right. They were like, okay, they're going to bang against their shields for a little while. And, and to me, one of the most, like, the best illustrations of that is you've got the guy in the tower banging on the sort of xylophone thing, yeah. which I, I just thought was fantastic. The anvil. I keep waiting for one of the Imperials to want to take care of it. And when finally they do, I expected that, like, he's standing out in the open. You've got sharpshooters. Just shoot him. Like, I thought that's what they were going to do. And instead, they're like, no, just go up there and tell him to stop. And then when he does, the guy on the xylophone, like, he doesn't break rhythm. He just, like, kicks out, knocks the guy off the tower to his death. Yeah. And it was both a kind of, like, a little bit of, like, Star Wars campiness that we hadn't seen from the show. And so I appreciated that. But it was also this beautiful moment of, like, the Empire completely underestimating just how fervent this this uprising feeling is. There should have been a Wilhelm scream. What's that? Oh, um, the, I'm so glad the, there wasn't. <laughs> the, the, there's, there's this thing in um, um, sound design in movies called the Wilhelm scream, and you will hear it in every Star Wars film that Lucas did and all of the Indiana Jones films, too. Yeah. And it's this, like, really campy scream of falling. Oh um, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. the same one. They, we've been they've been using it for decades and decades, apparently. Yeah, it's the same foley, just over and over. It's like, oh, there it is. That's that yep. particular scream that I've heard before. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, it 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 felt like kind of real to me, even though it was like surprising. I thought he was going to hit him in the stormtrooper helmet with the hammers or something, but he just just awesome kicked too. him right over the edge, you know. Um, but it, yeah, to me, the whole thing kind of speaks to me of it's like this is, you know, these people's home and, right. you know, they've had this sentiment building up over time and they know how the area works, basically, the ins and outs of things, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, just the, I, I do think that the Empire, you know, underestimated it, you know, and I mean, right. granted, it's like Dedra, she did say no snipers, right? So they didn't have a bunch of snipers yeah. on the towers because she she was like, we're not trying to kill. The, her main thing wasn't like control this funeral procession. It's let's capture Andor, right? Yeah, she didn't care that this might be like a minor rebellion on a minor planet. Right. And kind of didn't see that coming, I think, to some extent, you know, but yeah. um, and the the kid who threw the bomb, I think Wilmon is his name or something. Um, uh, his his dad was, I think, just hanged by the Empire. Right. That's the guy who his dad was the one who, mm. who ran the shop. And and Dedra was like, oh, I don't care. Whatever. Do whatever you want. And the guys like, well, I'd like to hang him in the town square to show, you know, you know, demonstrate our authority. It's like, how did that work out for you? Um, and on some way, like, I would have, it would have been more cathartic to see just, like, all the stormtroopers and, you know, and Imperials just, like, trounced and, you know, yeah, um, killed even, right? But mm-hmm. but this felt more like, yeah, that's that's probably, like, what would happen. You know, it's not, it's not a... It's not this like planned, oh, let's overthrow the empire here, right? It wasn't that type of rebellion. It was a, you know, we're we're mad as hell about, you know, we're sick of this and we're just not going to just comply anymore. Yeah. I imagine going forward, things aren't going to go very well on Ferrix. I, will I mean, say. one of the things that I was thinking of is the idea that the empire has this kind of overconfidence of... Yeah, we, we have people with guns. We're going to tell the people what to do. They're going to do it. 
<clears throat> and now they're kind of surprised that, you know, people like Dedra are like, wait, I, I didn't think they would do that. Clearly the Emperor and, and, and Vader and all of them have been known about the Darth, uh, have known about the Death Star project for years. Mm. But in terms of like the rest of the military being okay with this like planet destroying weapon, like, yeah, a time when like your confidence has been shattered and you're feeling the like, yeah, we're, we're the Empire, we're in total control. These people are always going to fear us has been broken. Yeah. And then someone comes along and goes, okay, but don't worry. We've got a weapon that's going to put them back in line. Mm. Like, yeah, this is a pretty good time where I could see some of the military being like, okay, that's extreme, but we need an extreme measure right now. I'm just glad somebody didn't stand up and go, you know, not all stormtroopers are bad. There's just a few bad apples. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. A ASAB? Is that the... the, the <laughs> all stormtroopers oh, are bad. ASAB, yeah. ASAB, yeah. There we go. I I mean, I do think that this did show that, like, the stormtroopers aren't necessarily stormtroopers because they want to do stormtrooper things, you know? Yeah. It's just it's what they're doing, and they're they're not uh, allowing their... They're not having a conscience that, that prevents them from doing horrible things, but their their aim isn't necessarily, necessarily to do horrible things, right? Yeah, like, I, I'm still struck by, you know, it's hard to think of them as all like, wah, fascism, fascism, we can kill all the people, when we saw those two people who were like, oh, cool, we can see a fireworks show, you know? Right. Like, so there's one last thing that I wanted to bring up. Uh, we've already passed an hour, so I don't want us to go too much longer, but uh, give you both a chance as well. And I'm wondering what you thought of that uh, kind of one of the last scenes we got of seeing that Mon Mothma was going to kind of go ahead with what the the money money guy who's kind of a gangster had asked of at least allowing the daughter and the son to kind of meet up in a way that like, you know, maybe it's not a forced marriage, but one of the things that um, – uh, TikToker I follow pointed out that I thought was really good was like in the first time it's raised, you're sort of like, well, why don't you allow your daughter to just meet with this guy's son? Because your daughter's not an idiot. She's not going to want to jump into a marriage at 15. So why are you so worried? And then when we saw that the daughter is part of that organization, we're actually maybe, yeah, she would be very happy to like marry, get married to the first guy she kind of, you know, meets and flirts with in that way. That you understand why it's much more of a sacrifice for Mon Mothma to do this. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't think it was in, in like a definite that a marriage is going to happen, but certainly much more likely than just a first meeting. Uh, what do you all think of that? How that scene was portrayed? I'd also like to address Mon Mothma completely playing Perrin and the ISB with making that up the fantastic. thing. About, that was that was money. I was like, oh, that's yeah. that's nice, you know. Um, basically, bringing up his previous uh, gambling issues i think which seems like that those were real but then now they're not there but this is the explanation for right. how you know and so the empire thinks they have something on her when in fact they don't have the thing that they could have on her uh it reminds me a little bit of cassian like getting you know um arrested for jaywalking basically but um mm -hmm. but but here she's you know she's doing that on purpose i i think her you know it's tough because it's like well, her daughter clearly wants to follow this tradition, which letting her daughter choose to do that feels like it's giving her daughter her agency. But on the other right. hand, the tradition is all about not having agency. So, right. you know, it, it seems like a very difficult parenting moment. <laughs> and I think she basically... 
maybe she tells herself, well, if that's what she wants, even though it's not what I think she should want, you know, and it's clearly not what Mon Mothma wants, but she's, um, you know, kind of willing to allow her daughter to sacrifice herself for the greater good without her knowledge of it in a weird right. Kind of, you know, it, it's it's a lot like the Anto Krieger thing, right? Except, um, you know, it's basically Anto Krieger wanted to attack Spellhouse. And Luthen's like, all right, go ahead, attack Spellhouse. He had information that was like, you you definitely shouldn't do this. But he didn't give that to him. Here, Mon Mothma's like, okay, you want to meet some boy in the Chandrillan tradition? Go ahead, meet some boy in some Chandrillan tradition. When, in fact, she knows, like, this is this is not a good idea, you know? Well, and I- I think that's right, but I think there's one more step to it, sure. which is that it's not that she's like, okay, if you meet some boy in the Shanjoan tradition, I won't stand in the way. It's okay if you want this, I will then help facilitate a meeting with a boy sure. that is completely for my own ends. Well, my own yeah, city, yeah, galaxy yeah. ends. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I think that's the key is that she doesn't just let it happen; she actively facilitates it with this one specific person. Yeah. Although you could say that you know, Luthen allows Anto Krieger to go into this doomed battle. Partially so that then the ISB will assume that there is no mole within the ISB and then he can yeah. achieve his goals more easily going forward because nobody's going to be looking at um, that dude. Yeah, I think that's true. The untrue Coventry story about Winston Churchill, right? The broken mm-hmm. code. What was, your, what was your take on it, Matthew? It seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do in her position, um, and it's an also a completely horrible thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we should give her no, like, bonus points for being a good revolutionary because of it. Yeah. But um, narratively, I think it I think it does something interesting, which is we now have uh, to wait, like, more than a year, and um, we have a number of female characters hanging in the wind in ways that we should be concerned about. Um, mm. The daughter um, and or sister is out there. Um, so um, Vix has just been rescued, but we don't really know what damage. But, but what her. kind of what kind of psychological damage does she have? Yeah. Um, whereas the male characters aren't in that kind of straits. Mm. And I think that's an I think that's an interesting place to leave it. I, yeah. I, I'm not going to offer a critique because I don't think there's you can at this point. But um, but I think it's a really interesting place to leave it. Because Lord knows I really don't like Mon Mothma's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I actually really thought you were going to go in a very different direction, though I do love what you said as well. Because what I saw as as the interesting narrative thing they were doing was up until this point, they've kind of set it up as... Luthen is the revolutionary who's willing to get his hands dirty, mm. whereas Mon Mothma still has this idea of kind of like the purity of what they're doing. And, you know, before you know, you're talking about, so there's some lines that you don't cross. And I kind of think, you know, selling off your daughter to help the revolution, like it's a line a lot of people would say they don't want to cross. And yeah, again, because of the daughter's engagement with it and involvement with it, it's, that's, that's an oversimplification of it. But it to me felt very much like this was the moment where, where, like, I think if Luthen had seen this, he would be a, like, 
See? Remember <laughs> what I said? Like, because it is her realizing, like, she can't keep her hands as clean. Right. Uh, in some ways, especially because she kind of, like, throws both her family members under the bus in this episode. Yeah. Like, I don't think her husband gets really badly hurt, but now, like, people think he's a gambling addict again. And, and her daughter's now getting involved with, which it's not just, I think, that she's going through with this marriage tradition that they find horrible, but to the son of, like, a really bad guy. So... Yeah, I, I just really liked that, like, Mon, Mon Mothma ending ending in that position, given where she started the season. I can agree with that. Yeah, um, me too. Because what, remember, what? she at, you could take Mon Mothma's entire story out of this season um, because it's not significant to the rest of the story, really. So clearly it's part of a huge setup. Um, and that huge setup has to be her turning into somebody who's going to talk about lines we do not cross as though right. she knows what happens when you do that. Mm. Right. Yeah. She's a very important character going forward. Right. And here right. she's, this is like, you know, th- <laughs> this is her anti-hero turn basically. Right. Yeah. Like throughout the first season, like wanting to do a huge good thing and then coming around to maybe that's going to take a lot of smaller bad things yeah. along the way. And this is what I do appreciate that we're starting to get overlapping stories because this is now happening right about the same time that Rebels was is taking place. And my understanding is that the next show is going to be like moving closer to the time of Luke Skywalker. And so we're going to be directly overlapping. And Mon Mothma is a character who appears in Rebels yeah. at further along in her journey. So I'll be curious to see where that goes. All right. Well, I think it's got a pretty good wrapping up point. Any of the last things either you want to... I think it's a pretty good wrapping up point. Is there anything else either of the two of you want to throw in? I truly hope somebody writes down everything Karis Nemec said and <laughs> posts it somewhere, please. Yeah. yeah. I, I want. I will happily read it. I'd much prefer if it's like just a full audio, like I said, of him him reading all of it. But whatever it is, he's very good at it. Yeah. Let's find it. Yeah. Um, I will say that, like in terms of representation, I, I would hope that Jez becomes, you know, a more, more of a character going forward. Um, she was, you know, one of the, the daughters of Ferrix who's, who, you know, uh, flies the ship, right. For with Brasso and and Bix and, um, B2 emo. And, um, you know, just cause like there really are not very many black women in star Wars. So like, you know, that is is a really good point. It it would be, it would be nice to, you know, to see that. I mean, the only two ones I can think of, uh, primarily are both ones who start as Imperial yeah. and then either before we see them uh, or while we see them have hero turns. Mm-hmm. One of them being Reva and the other one being the the person who might be Lando's daughter in Rise of Skywalker. Right. So yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, there's also the character in Jedi Fallen Order. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, and there are there, there's a couple others in Rebels, I will say for sure. But yeah. yeah, yeah, but just like you know, just in terms of in the in the live action. Live action. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, uh, and I would say if you follow my Twitter, you'll also see a, a woman who I follow did a great thread specifically on the lack of Black women representation in Star Wars. It's very worth reading. Uh, Matthew, any last things from you? I am done. Congrats. That's awesome. Um, well, thank you both, as always, so much for being a part of this. Uh, we have a lot of great feedback that we've gotten from you all as re- as listeners that I'm really excited to get to go into. We're probably going to do 
two feedback episodes. I still have to schedule some of them. We might even the third, depending on how many more we get in. So please continue to send those in. Uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're going to be doing with the, this podcast going forward. Uh, I want to restart our Rebels coverage, but just due to schedules, we probably can't do that to the new year. I think we're going to talk some about some of the books that have come out. Um, I'm going to finally start watching Star Wars Resistance again and talking about that somewhat. Um, I know Matthew had expressed interest in doing the second half of Tales of the Jedi about Count Dooku that we haven't done yet, which I'd really love to do. So we'll have a lot of great content. We'll probably take a break around the holidays uh, at the end of the year, but we will have a couple good episodes for you. So please keep sticking around. Of course, you can find all of Paul's hoppy stuff under Zen Madman. And you can find Professor Matthew Capel uh, under that name and also at the links we will have in our show notes. And of course, everything I do is under the name The Ethical Panda. Uh, you can just go to theethicalpanda.com or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, all the places. Uh, if you want to email us, it's Matthew at theethicalpanda.com. Uh, although hopefully I now have my other email addresses auto-forwarding. Apologize, I didn't have that working for a while. But would love to know what you think. Tell us your feedback. Tell us your thoughts. What did you love about this episode? What are you thinking for Cassian in a couple of years? What What are you excited about next coming for Star Wars? I think we have Bad Batch coming. We have Ahsoka coming. We have a lot of new content coming soon. So on behalf of myself, Matthew, and Paul, I just want to say, as, as we in the U.S. at least get ready to go into a time of giving thanks for the things that are good in our lives, uh, tied up with a whole bunch of really awful I mean Matthew talk about mythology uh, the Thanksgiving story has been a horrible event that's been mythologized but putting even that aside I, I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening thank you for writing in thank you for supporting us um, this podcast has been such a great part of my life and I, I, I love that so many other people have gotten involved and it wouldn't happen without you all as the listeners and the supporters so thank you all so much hope you have a chance to do something great in the next couple days whether it's you're celebrating thanksgiving or anywhere else in the world just you know take some time to say thank you to the the people and the things in your life that are at least going halfway decent so thank you all so much and have a good day <laughs>